This big drum of the ocean. I stepped out onto the sand, getting all over my shoes. I felt the mist of the ocean on my skin. There's something captivating about um, a beautiful fall mist on the ocean. I stepped out to see the waves turning and roaring. You can barely actually see the waves, even though you're right up yeah. close to them, because it's so thick with fog, just looking into this white abyss. And I was thinking about how it's, um, it's so different to see a picture of the ocean compared to actually being at the ocean. You might see uh, a photograph of the ocean, right? Imagine if you kept like a photograph of the ocean in your wallet at all the times. Anytime you wanted to see something beautiful, you pulled out this little photograph of your wallet or purse or man purse. Um, <laughs> it's becoming more of a thing. Um, you pull out this photograph of the ocean and you see something beautiful and you're like, wow, it's nice to remind myself of something beautiful, but in a sense, it's a little artificial. While a photograph might strike up some uh, sensation of an inspiration of seeing something beautiful, there's nothing like quite actually being at the ocean. There's nothing like quite actually hearing the ocean. There's, there's nothing quite actually like seeing how vivid and real it is with our own eyes in person, seeing the motion of it churning and swelling. A lot of the times, um, I kind of treat God like a photograph uh, I carry around with me. And when I, when I check in with God or when I read the word or when I'm in prayer, it's like it doesn't engage all of the senses of my soul. It's, it's something kind of distant, and it's, it is something beautiful and inspirational, but I'm not fully engaged in it. Throughout my busy schedule, I just kind of pull it out, look at it, and a little inspired. But I think there's a point when we're on a retreat like this, where it's more about actually stepping into experience, actually stepping into a, a full, vivid experience of, of time with uh, God, being away from our normal routines. And I'm, I'm praying mostly this weekend that you hear the voice of Jesus saying, come away, my beloved. Come, come, come away with me. Come be with me. Come meet with me. As I was praying for this camp, I, I just like saw this almost vision of, of people literally standing at the foot of the ocean meeting with their God. This morning I got completely lost on the beach because I was uh, rehearsing my sermon and walking in one direction and, and uh, I had no clue. I was just how far down I went and it's like super hard to see the cross thing to actually like get back to camp. And so uh, I don't know how far down that way I went but I started going down the other way and I was like, well, I, I must have like at least a mile more to go. And, uh, but I start get to get concerned. I run into a gal, uh, Kenzie, and I was like, how far down that way is the camp? And she's like, no, the camp is up that way. I was like, oh, please help me. Please help me. Um, but there was this also like cool sensation of getting kind of like lost out there and not worrying too much about time. And, uh, and just kind of like being in this place of adventure and trusting God, I would somehow make it back to camp. Um, I'm not saying you guys should get lost out at the beach today. But it is kind of good in a relationship with Jesus to get a little lost, to get a little disoriented in a good way where we're like, I'm just out here to be with you, Jesus. I'm not thinking about what I have to do next today. I'm not thinking about what my worries or concerns are. I'm just like lost out with you. Get away with Jesus. Get away with your beloved a little bit today. We even have quiet time scheduled right after this message so you can get away with your beloved and get a little lost with him. Just you and, and the Lord, whether that's time you read scripture during this quiet time or uh, it's time you spend in prayer or you sing songs out on the beach and hopefully no one hears you, but there's always that person maybe hearing you. It's bad when I sing alone with God. Like, I know it sounds bad, but it feels so good. And the Lord loves our voices, man, whether you're a good singer or not. Um, I, I, I hope even this time right now, we dive into the word of God, it is a time of you seeing the vividness of God, like actually being at the ocean, a time where your soul becomes engaged in all of its senses to the word of God. We, uh, we're going to make some headway in 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible, open it to 1 Peter. We're still in chapter 1. We only made it through two verses yesterday. Um, we're not going to make it through all of 1 Peter this weekend. The cool thing is uh, it, you're totally allowed to read it as many times as you want, whenever you want. And so don't put that all on me. 
Dude, there's too much meat in First Peter, like to 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 uh, chew on. There's just too much of it. Um, we're gonna unpack some of it today. Um, there's there's too much veggie. <laughs> there's a lot of theological things that uh, with a lot of nuances in it for sure. Um, if you don't have a Bible and try to look over at your partner or something, we're gonna go through scripture where it's really helpful to actually read it, even if you have a phone. I guess it's okay to get it out and look at it. You're a little less spiritual than the people with their actual Bibles here. I feel you, man. You get points. You get brownie points. God's Okay, let's start in uh, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's a grand slam of like three verses right there. There's a lot of meat there. Let's start with the where he talks about the hope through the resurrection. Now, re- remember, in context, this is written to primarily Gentile Christians living in uh, a Roman province. That's a corrupt society. God has called them to be countercultural, to live like Jesus is their king, and to live by his set of morals and values, to live as exiles who are living like they're living out what it means to be a citizen of heaven while they're a citizen of Rome. They're called to go against the grain a little bit, called to go against the grain of a society that's rather corrupt, rather, rather brutal, rather violent, or rather um, oppressive government, a hypersexualized um, culture, uh, a, a culture that is rampant with drunkenness and substance abuse, a culture uh, that is prominent with idol worship, a culture that the family dynamics ingrained into it are... Um, Rather domineering, rather, uh, yeah, rather domineering. But Peter reminds them in this exile they're living in that they have a hope worth holding on to that gives them the strength to live against the grain, that gives them the strength to live like Jesus in, in a nation that isn't about Jesus. It applies to us, I think, a lot living in a hypersexualized culture. And in a culture where idolatry doesn't look like a little golden statue, it looks like people idolizing their money and their careers, clinging to their own lives, idolizing consumerism and materialism. We are called to the same thing, to live against the grain. They are born again of the Spirit as people who are to live a transformed life, a life of love and purity, of servanthood and devotion to God. They're not to be sexually immoral. They're not to be idolatrous. They're not to be controlling or aggressive in their home life. They're born again of the Spirit to a living hope. It's through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that the power to live against the grain comes. Romans 6, 8. And if you even want to flip to Romans, you can. I'm going to talk a, a little bit through some of, some of Romans 6 right now. And as the Bible pages turn, or the phone scrolls within a second. I am doing everything out of the ESV version, um, but it's really cool if you have a different version to hear some of the ways it's translated um, differently. I think can, can uh, highlight different things. Romans 6, verse 8 through, I think, 11. Talking about how the power of living counterculturally for Jesus comes really through the resurrection of Jesus. It says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him for the death he died. He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I have read Romans 6 
especially verse 6, so much um, in my life. And, and it continues to surprise me that I am actually dead to sin and alive to God. It's like so easy for me to forget or to water that down or for that to just be a saying and not a spiritual reality I actually live in. And I am actually dead to sin. The power of sin has been broken over it. I'm no longer to live by sins every beck and call. And uh, it's easier for me to just kind of, well, rewrite the scriptures in my mind. Not I'm dead to sin, but I struggle with sin all the time. Sin is still alive in my life. It's easy for me to imagine the Christian life is, is more about, well, um, fighting the sin that entangles us than counting ourselves dead to it. But Jesus died with our sins imputed on him. Our sins were put on him. And when he died, he buried our sin in the grave. He buried the very thing that, had, that governed our spirits, the very thing that entangled us into the grave. And, I, and, and um, a lot of the times my Christian walk feels like shadow boxing. A boxer, when they practice, they just boop, boop, boop. They punch at the air a bunch. They shadow box. They're not actually fighting anyone. They're just punching at the air. And a lot of times my fight with sin is like, bah, 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 bah. me just shadow boxing something that's not actually there. And I think it would be better to be grounded on the spiritual truth that I'm dead to it rather than trying to re-crucify myself with Christ. To trust that I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I have lived to us. Now in Galatians 5, it talks all about the tension of the spirit in the flesh. And that's a real tension we feel, you guys. That's a real tension we feel. Galatians 5 also ends with saying that we've been crucified. That we've been crucified with that. And while we live in this like almost paradox of feeling the tension of spirit and flesh, we're supposed to count ourselves dead through faith with Christ. And it's through the faith that we're dead with him that the power of sin loses its weight. We stop shadow boxing at something that Christ has already dealt with. And you guys, I'm all over the place with how much I actually live in the reality of that truth. But the goal is faith, and through faith to live righteously. Not just did Christ die putting our sin to death, but the life he lives, he now lives to God in the spirit. It's in Christ that we find a new life with a new heart with his laws written on it, pressed into us and printed on our hearts, etched onto us. It's only by abiding in the vine as the branch that we recognize this new person he's made us into. And a, a branch connected to a vine has all of its nutrients, all of its life flowing into it into a way that it produces fruit. But if the branch isn't connected to the vine, if it stops abiding, well, it falls to the ground and it withers away. It dies. I think so much of the secret to the Christian life is to abide in the life Jesus has for us. This is the living hope of the resurrection. It's more than just a hope, though, that sin is, um, not, is not something we're controlled by. It's a hope that we will live forever in the perfected kingdom that is to come, the new heaven and the new earth. It talks about an inheritance in this passage in 1 Peter. If you're Romans, flip back to 1 Peter. It talks about an inheritance. Inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It can't be touched by the schemes of the devil, by the corruption of this world. It is kept in heaven as a treasure for us. In Romans 8, I'll just read this for you guys. It says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption. We eagerly await for something. You don't, and the idea of the inheritance here is there's something to come. Just like how we have to wait for an inheritance till like our parents die, we wait for something to come that isn't yet given. They're waiting the adoptions of sons, the redemption of our bodies is what it says. For in this hope we, in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is Seen is not hope. If you already have something, you don't have to hope for it. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We await for the perfected kingdom to come. And like I said yesterday, this is really pointing us back to what it means to be 
in exile. Our hope is not in this world. Our home is not in this world. There's a greater hope in the perfected kingdom that will come. And we live this pilgrimage here with an eternal mindset because this will pass away. It will wither. It will fall away. But what is to come will last forever. What will to come in the perfected kingdom is a glorified body that is not tainted by decay or death. What will come in the perfected kingdom is to live with God forever. Without sickness, pain, or suffering, without corruption, war, or greed, or sin. I await that day. I, didn't, I don't earn my way into that day. It's solely because Jesus has purified me by his blood, by his death, by the hope of, through his resurrection. There is no way God's going to allow me into the new heaven and earth, into his perfected kingdom, because I earned it. Thanks be to Jesus for his grace in that. We know what that's like because the spirit is a foretaste of future glory. Ephesians 1.14 says that spirit being a pledge and a foretaste of our inheritance, an anticipation waiting for its full redemption, the inheritance which he has purchased us to be specially his for the extolling of his glory. The only taste I have of what this new heaven and earth will be is the communion I have with God in the spirit. You know, it's like when someone's baking something and they give you just a little spoonful of the brownie mix or the cookie dough and they say, try some of this, right? It could be super, maybe not baking stuff too, right? You get a little foretaste and you're like, oh, I'm so excited for when that meal is fully made, baked, created, and I can eat it. The spirit is that foretaste. It is that spoonful of intimacy with God, and yet we wait for the whole cake of his kingdom to be established. You know, I think so much of the hope we should have should make us a little discontent in the world. Not discontent in God, not discontent in our place in this world, but discontent with what the world has to offer. We're not supposed to love the world. We love the world, we may not have the love of the Father in us, is what it says in 1 John. We're supposed to have an internal mindset, an awareness of the times we're in. We're in the last days, you guys. And Joel 2, it says the Spirit was poured out on all flesh in the last days. Now is the time where the Spirit is available. Now is the time where we await Jesus' return in the perfected kingdom. We've got to keep our eyes above. It can feel strained, hard to just survive in this world to just carry on with our busy day to the point where we get distracted of what is really to come. We can just have our head down in the trenches grinding and grinding and grinding. And then the, the problem is we lose the hope that we're meant to hold on to. God is guarding us in faith. That's what it says in First Peter, in those first few verses, that God is guarding us in faith in Christ's resurrection as the sign of the coming inheritance. I'm thankful that God is guarding me in this faith and that it's not all up to me to drum up, constantly reminding myself of the hope of God. Yes, God wants me to pursue him and seek him and put my eyes on this hope, but man, the Holy Spirit helps remind me of it. Dude, so much of God's kindness and patience is just him constantly reminding us over and over. Like a parent who has to constantly remind their kid over and over to you know, not do things or to do things or to not do that thing. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for being patient and kind and reminding us. Let's jump on to um, verse 6 through 9 in 1 Peter. Still in chapter 1, guys. <laughs> in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Dude, I don't really need to preach. That verse says it all. But we, let's unpack it. spent a lot of time in like Paul's letters in church too. And oh man, Paul's great. It's kind of nice to get into Peter. It's kind of nice to just get into something else than just Paul. 
It talks about the living hope of the, re um, of the resurrection and perishable inheritance. It talks about rejoicing. Well, I want to I just kind of be real for a second. What often do we rejoice in? What, what, what often do we actually find a deep sense of well-being and gladness in? It can be founded on the wrong things. It can be founded on the temporal. That will fade and wither away. It can be, um, our hope can be a little bit too seated in life going our way. Think of that Rolling Stones song. I think it's Rolling Stones. You don't always get what you want, but you get what you need. You know what I mean? Man, life's not going to always go your way. I'm actually really sad if it always has because it may not produce a deeper faith if you don't experience trials. Do we often put our hope overly in pursuing our own dreams? That can become a major idol, especially for us in our early 20s. God cares about your dreams and desires, but man, we are supposed to live open-handedly, right? Amen. Are we put our hope too much in being married, or, you know what, being, being single can be hard for a lot of people. For, for a lot of people who want to be married and they're single, that, that can be really hard. I'm not going to invalidate that. I remember being single and lonely, being kind of confused in that. I, I put a lot of hope in being married, um, probably an unhealthy amount. Do we have like some weird hope of uh, children in a white picket fence? Do we, do we have our hope of... of being a young professional and living in a van? None of these things are bad. But when we throw our hope into them a little too much, we get so off balance, so spiritually unbalanced. Do we have a hope of just being liked by everyone? Dude, people pleasing, number one addict right here. Do we have a hope of being loved and liked by our community? Do we just kind of shine and glow and, and uh, we're happy People in our church notice us and think we're great, but uh, if we don't get that recognition, we're like kind of like a little Pharisee walking away sad. Now, none of these are bad, like I said, but they're micro compared to the joy of Christ. What I want to say is, if this is where our hope is a little too seated in, the problem is we're not experiencing the joy that comes with hope in Jesus' promises. They are shallow, rather, compared to the deep joy of God. The joy of the Lord is my strength, not the joy of all these other things. Do you find yourself rejoicing in the gospel and the subsequent glories that it brings often? Or is your happiness predetermined by other things, vain things? I need refinement in this area this weekend of where I'm finding my hope and joy. Are we happy one day and then the next we've sunk into a, a micro bout of depression because our circumstances didn't go our way? There is immense joy in the spirit. And I've met people going through really hard suffering that have intense joy. Maybe not a lot of happiness, but a sense of well-being and gladness despite the suffering. That, that's like Mother Teresa sainthood type stuff. It's mesmerizing to see someone in trials have intense joy. There is joy in the truth of the gospel that reveals our new identity there is joy in the promises of God that's an imperishable, undefiled, unfading hope for us kept in heaven. There is joy in the coming kingdom that will be perfected. What do we put our hope in? Is it a promotion at work? Things working out in our favor? These aren't bad things, but man, they can, they can turn the compass of our heart away from Jesus into the things of this earth. Is it a new season of whatever show we're watching coming out? Is that bringing us the most joy and hope? Dude, I need prayer to not be struggling with Netflix so much. Often our desires drive our hope. Our desires drive our hope. Often our desires are, well, fickle. The heart can be wicked and deceitful above all else. Guard it above all else. Find it guarded in the truths of God and his hope. Those who delight themselves in the Lord, though, he grants the desires of the heart. You know, delighting ourselves in the Lord means, in a lot of ways, coming to love his ways, coming to hear his heartbeat of the things God cares about, coming to hear what God delights in, and we start to delight in it. And then that's a place where, what, where our desires are so transformed that God will grant them because they're already his. It's already his will. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will grant you the desires of your heart. Like I said yesterday, I have this kind of testimony of, 
of 10 years of Christianity, split down the middle, five years of, of holding things back from God, of, of not being a spouse who's completely devoted and committed to Jesus. But then I have a different five years of throwing myself at God. It, it did take me hitting rock bottom to get to the point where I wanted to throw myself at God. But what I've seen is when I threw myself at God, the things I really cared about, he started to refine. The things I really cared about, my desires, he started to refine and make more beautiful. It's this process I go through with God of telling him where I'm actually at, what I actually want. Dude, I feel like so much in my prayers, God is like, what do you want? It's a rhetorical question. What do you want? And it's deeper than just like wanting material things. I, sometimes I have to tell God I, I want those things a lot. Sometimes he gives me them. Sometimes he doesn't. I have to tell God what I want with my dreams and my desires. I remember I got to a point when I really started throwing myself at God where I was like, all I want is to disciple people, God. I want to see people raised up spiritually. And trust me, that's a desire only the Holy Spirit could have given me. I got to a point where my, fires were, my desires were refined like that. And... God brought me into this opportunity in life where I became a 22-year-old dean of a Bible college. Dude. Dudettes. I had uh, zero biblical training. I still have never been to Bible school. I'm youth pastor. I love studying the Bible. Please don't discredit me. <laughs> but, but uh, dude, I was not equipped, not trained, undeserving. My resume wasn't big enough for that position. And I got to disciple all these college-age people who were like my age. I definitely wasn't. Most of them were more mature than me. But Jesus in his grace, I don't know, granted the desires of my heart. I wanted to see God's kingdom spread. That became a desire when I really started pressing the Lord. When I moved up to Bellingham, God uh, gave me a position at a homeless rescue mission, the Lighthouse uh, Lighthouse Mission up in Bellingham, and I worked for street outreach with homeless folks. I drove around this um, mobile shower trailer with, with two shower units in it, and we would take it to like food banks, we'd take it to churches, and homeless folks would literally come out of the wood and off the bus stops to come get showers and socks and clothes. You guys, I am like the most, one of the most sheltered, privileged people. I, me interacting and trying to help homeless folk is like, I have no experience or context in that, but I wanted to see God's kingdom spread. That was a good desire, and he granted me. He took me to a place as unlikely of what I thought I would be doing to spread his kingdom. I saw his kingdom spread in beautiful ways. I saw folks with immense suffering, illness, disability. We're really, for many of them, their only hope is God, despite the things they were entangled and wrapped up in. It was like spiritual boot camp for me working at this homeless shelter because it put me in a place where I had to be so dependent on God. But in that place, I saw his kingdom spread so beautifully. God granted me a lot of desires in my heart, but it took him refining a lot of those desires. It took those desires starting to become in alignment with him. I want to say God doesn't ask us to suffocate our desires. He asks us to give us what we, him what we really want and allow him to transform it, allow him to beautify it, allow him to shape things up and chip away at them. Y'all, a lot of you guys are, are, are kind of looking down what your life will look like, building your life right now. Take that open-handedly to the Lord. Tell him everything with what you actually want. Hide nothing from him. Allow him to refine and beautify that. We're talking about hope, though. And hope comes from our desires. What we want is often where our hope starts to go. What happens when the storm comes in life and our hope is tested? Well, the vain things start to fall away. You fail a class. Your parents get sick. A car accident happens. You lose a friend to drama. You get fired from your job. You get broken up with. You get divorced. Will your hope still be secure even when this life doesn't give you what you want. Many of us will not live out our dreams in this room. Maybe God will give you something better. Some of us will. But you don't always get what you want. You get what you need. Do you still have hope when your circumstances fall away? Is the gospel enough? Is the hope of the perfected kingdom and your inheritance in it enough? 
And let me just read this part in 1 Peter again. I think it's 6 through 9. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials are not an evil thing. How we go through them determines a lot, though. Trials will come that grieve us. You know, actually working at the homeless shelter was, was a major trial for me. I, I have a college degree in teaching. Uh, I'm a licensed teacher. And, I, and this was like six years after I got my degree. Every year you spend after you get your degree um, in not doing what you do, you kind of start to realize every year you get farther away from your career, even though you got your degree, you're like, why did I spend all that time in school? <laughs> What's gonna happen? I was so disoriented. I was newly married. I wasn't making a lot of money. I was living in a one-bedroom apartment. I had no idea what I was gonna do and it seemed like the very thing I'd spent a lot of time building in my life wasn't probably what's going to happen. And I was mopping floors and cleaning out showers homeless people had pooped in rather than getting paid big money to be a public school teacher. It was hard on that personal level. I could have maybe just quit, maybe avoided what I thought God was calling me to do. I wanted to. I wanted to. Not only was there that struggle in my heart, but there was the compassion fatigue that... That for me, that just seeing people struggle, be broken, hearing people who died on the streets, seeing the mentally ill, and, and feeling so helpless in these catastrophic problems in people's lives. And, and not really being able to insulate myself from my own level of care and compassion, slowly but surely getting burned out. But I came to a point, so burned out and exhausted by suffering in this homeless shelter, where I said, God, I will stay here as long as you want me to. Even if it means I don't end up making more money in life, or even if it means uh, I'm completely wrecked with compassion. You know, God, what's good for me. It's maybe one of the first times in my life I fully threw myself at God in a situation that was hard and embraced suffering rather than avoided it or tried to escape from it or walk away from it. Now, don't suffer senselessly. But if God calls you to, it's suffer well, I stayed there for one year and one day. It's funny. I told myself if I could make it a year, that would be great. And God says, you can make it one year and one day. You can do one more by my power. You know? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Trials, they, they refine us. And many of us here are going through trials and suffering. I want to validate that. I want to ask you how you're going through it. Listen, man, just sometimes the path of going through trials like a saint doesn't mean you don't whine and complain a little bit. I'm not saying you have to be perfect, but what I'm saying is you are supposed to be walking in the spirit committed to Jesus. And that doesn't make the pain go away, but it makes the way you walk through that pain different. It hurts just as much. Trials burn away that which is impure in us. They burn away that which is fickle. There's a... There's a man in my church right now, in his mid-40s, who's lost his job, who has three months left to live with cancer. His whole life has fallen away, and he knows his, uh, his life is going to end shortly. Dude, the way this guy goes through it shines Jesus. He's in pain. He's hurt. He's scared. He's going to leave his family. He's got young kids. Man, the way he shines Jesus to his church and to others, the way he continues to glorify God rather than get bitter is beautiful, rather than curse God. You know, Job was so hurt about what happened in his life when suffering came, but he never cursed God. He still, at the end of the day, at the very core of him, trusted God was good, even though he didn't understand what he was doing and all his friends are accusing him of sinning. He still held on. This friend I have at church, you know what he's thinking about the most? Not the fickle things in his life. He's thinking about, with his last three months of life, what he can say to help people realize the eternal realities, because he knows very concretely how temporal this life is. Trials are a blessing in disguise. Not that pain is, well, a good thing. It's pain, but trials are a blessing to describe it. 
disguise. We can grow bitter and fall away, or we can go stronger roots in the storm. Often it's when we're at rock bottom that Jesus does become our beloved. That was my subjective experience. When I was at the end of my rope, when I, I struggled so hard with mental illness six or seven years ago, when I, like kind of my complete rock bottom. I never struggled that intensely to the point where I was debilitated, couldn't work. I had so much going on in my heart that was tangled up, I couldn't understand. My brain was in a frenzy mode trying to process and unpack it, where I felt constant physical anxiety, trying to find a solution in that. And, and I don't want to act like I can speak on everyone's mental illnesses here. But, but I did find something that I think is encouraging for us all. That I could come to Jesus with it. He could hear the chaos of my mind. I, could, I went down to this beach every day by where I grew up, and I spent like two hours in prayer there because it was the only thing I knew how to do to help. And I would have Jesus take the tape deck of fear and chaos and shame playing through my mind on repeat, and he would start to unravel it. He would start to speak into every thought that was causing me anxiety and chaos and pain. And he began to speak into it worth, value, forgiveness. And I had to go do that every single day because that tape deck played every single day. It was in, in that rock bottom that Jesus really became my beloved. He was the only thing that was concrete and truly there for me. Often, you know, I have had a, a sheltered faith without many trials. Oftentimes, we can be a little too sheltered from trials, a little too insulated. We, we can know the Bible, we can fit in church, we can understand theology, but will all of that last when the storm comes? I hope it does. The storm has a way of deepening our faith. It is tested faith that makes us full of joy. My mom would said to me when I went through that time of a really intense mental illness, don't waste your suffering. We cannot learn from our suffering. We can, we can su suffer and not gain the spiritual lessons we need to from it. We can suffer and have it not deepen our faith. Don't waste your suffering. Romans 5, 2 says, Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. I'm like in a position in life now where honestly my life is just kind of cushy, honestly. I, I kind of miss the spiritual boot camp of working at the rescue mission because I had to be super dependent on God with my emotions, with just literally like sometimes to be physically safe at the shelter. I had to be so dependent on God. And, and, and I am thankful for the rest I've received after being really burnt out. Um, I'm thankful that my life has been peaceful, has been prosperous. But, but, but there's a growing annoyance that maybe I need to seek out a little bit of suffering. Maybe I need to throw myself into positions where I'm more dependent on God. I'm a middle school youth pastor right now. I just get to go fishing and hang out with kids and it's beautiful and awesome. And perhaps there will be some suffering in that position. But it feels a little too cushy. There's this tendency in me to maybe stay insulated and not pray dangerous prayers like, God, bring me to the hardest people it would be for me to serve and, and enable me to serve them. You know, I've been thinking about well, who would be the hardest people for me to serve right now in life. I think it would be like old people, like at a senior living center that you'd have to wash. That would be weird. Um, you, it's just... That's so bad to say, but it's kind of gross to me, honestly. It's kind of gross to me. But I think, and I don't, uh, part of me wants to hold back to praying, God, take me to all these old people and help me serve them. But, 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 but a, a part of me, the radical son of God that he has made me, says, God, I want to experience the spiritual stretching. I want to experience uh, being stretching it, not being about me. I miss that because I'm having a little too much fun in life. I'm a little too cushy. Everything's going my way. I think I may need to seek out some suffering, actually. Yeah, maybe I need to take care of your kids and babysit and, and be a little more giving, a little more generous, make life a little bit less about myself. Now, some of you guys are going through real suffering and you do not need anything more added to your plate. Some of you guys are in a season of rest and you just need to enjoy it because it's not going to last forever. 
some of us, though, uh, need to get off the benches and need to get back into being tested by various trials and suffering. Some of us need to seek it out. You know, um, when I worked at the mission, I was really good friends with the chaplain there. He runs their men's recovery program. And uh, dude is like spiritual yoda to me. <laughs> he is like just so in love with Jesus, so giving, so aware of the spirit. Literally has spent his life pouring into men who are um, addicted, broken, kind of wretched a lot of the time. Like to, if there's anyone that looks like Jesus to me, it's this dude. And he said something to me that kind of floored me. He said, you know, I'm, the thing I'm most in danger of spiritually is becoming a Pharisee. I'm like, dude, you're like Mother Teresa to me. Why are you scared of that? But then it, it, it stuck me that perhaps, perhaps he was in, I don't know, there's a, there's a good humility in that. Perhaps he was aware of his spiritual position and him enjoying what he likes in life so much and him having, you know, being a spiritual leader and all the right answers. And I kind of relate to this. Like, I get to do a lot of this with my time. It's like, but what he's scared about is, is becoming someone who didn't know their Lord, but uh, was, was kind of that face value, walking the walk. I was like, dude, if that guy's worried about that, I should be 10 times more worried about that. You know what I mean? Faith, faith has to be tested to result in praise and glory and honor. I love that, that it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Faith that hasn't been tested, that has been tested, it doesn't even need to see Christ because it saw him work in the storm. There's so much when God shows up in our storm that it's proof. Faith that is tested doesn't need to see proof to love him. Faith that is tested rejoices with inexpressible joy filled with glory. Faith that is tested obtains the outcome of such faith, salvation. Sometimes our salvation becomes so real and important and vivid to us, like actually being at the ocean instead of just looking at a picture of it when we're in the storm, when we're in the trials. Faith that is tested is a treasure, a blessing to a community, a church, an encouragement to others. It is like gold that's been refined. You guys, there's a lot of First Peter. Should we keep going? I, don't, I have no idea how we're doing on time. Okay, cool. Let's go to verse 10 through 12. In the ESV, it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Thank you, prophets, for searching and inquiring carefully. <laughs> inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which to angels long to look. I wonder if the angels are literally looking down right now like, man, I long to look further into the gospel you guys are reading. I don't understand the whole angel thing. I need to study it more. Um, we could really Bible nerd out on verses 10 through 12 about how the spirit of Christ is literally working through the prophets to make Christ known. All that stuff is so very, it's exciting, guys. But what, 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 what's amazing to me is the key to the subsequent glories was Jesus' suffering. Because Jesus remained pure through his trials so that we would have grace to struggle in our trials. We're not going to live out our trials perfectly. We're going to live them out as people who are in the tension of the flesh and the spirit. That's a realistic uh, uh, expectation to have. Now we should shoot for excellence. And by the spirit, it is possible. And we are dead to sin to do it. But it's ultimately that Jesus suffered perfectly so that we can struggle in our trials. And it's through his struggling perfectly that he can be a sufficient sacrifice for us. Let's go to verse 13 to 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Does anyone's uh, translation say anything about girding the loins in this? What, what translation is it? Dude, yes, I love the girding the loins uh, wordage. Preparing your minds for action, girding your loins, and being sober-minded, 
Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Notes are all crumpled because I was out of getting misted on the beach with them. I love when the Bible says therefore, because it really means because. Because Jesus suffered, included us in the glories of his salvation, we should set our hope fully on the things which we've been given. Grace in Jesus and the hope in the perfected kingdom. The grace to be set apart. It's by, it's by grace that we've been sanctified, that we've been made holy, that which was defiled was made holy. Now, I was just thinking about this last night, too, when we were talking about sanctification. And, and give me a lot of grain of salt here because I haven't had time to study this. But it seems to me like there was objects used in the temple that were once defiled that through a process of purification are made holy, right? And then those objects are only supposed to be used for Temple purposes, close and near to the presence of the Lord. Is that biblically right? You can say no. I think, I think that makes sense, though. Something defiled is made holy, an object used in the temple. And, I was thinking, and that's its only purpose, to be set apart. Our only purpose is to be used and appointed by the Lord, and to not be used for anything which is not of the Lord. I need to study that more, but uh, I, think the, I think that's biblical. First Peter writes, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Because we are set apart, because we are sanctified for a purpose, and made right, be obedient, live like it. Because we are elect exiles, don't be mastered by sin. Don't be mastered by the world. Live against the grain of all that is ungodly. Because we are sanctified by the Spirit, don't be controlled by your old passions in the flesh. The Bible does a really good job of pointing out this difference between our old life in sin and our new life in Jesus. It, it does a good job of, of, of splitting them down the middle, of saying in our old life in the flesh is a very different thing from our new life in the Spirit, and we shouldn't overly mix them. And again, there's a struggle there. But our salvation and to live in the fullness of it is to walk in the Spirit in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. Living holy looks like union with God that has been purchased and established for you. It looks like abiding in the Spirit, like a branch to a vine. It looks like a heart full of love for God that comes from the new identity He's given us. Our old heart being crucified, our new heart being full of the Holy Ghost. Sometimes it's good to call the Spirit the Holy Ghost. It's just, it's fun. It's King Jamesy. The Holy Ghost. <laughs> Having a heart full of the Holy Ghost. Following the Spirit's rhythms. Let's end uh, this with reading verses 17 to 25. Does anyone else want to read? I'm, I bet you're tired of the tone of my voice. Does anyone have it? <laughs> okay. Does anyone have an ESV? Yes! What's your name? What's your name? Will. Will, I'll give me the mic. Will. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was forsaken before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, 
so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Thank you. What, what, what stuck out to you in that verse? I'm not, I'm not asking. It's rhetorical. Think about it. What stuck out to you in that verse? Was it that you've been ransomed? That there's an imperishable seed that lives in you? Was it that there's grass and flesh that wither and fall away? The things of this earth are fading and temporary? What stuck out to you in that passage? To me, one of the things that stuck out to me was to walk in the fear of the, of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. It's to know that only God can both destroy a soul or save a soul. To fear God alone and, and not man, which I struggle with. It's for me, it was to have an eternal mindset. To live that the eternal is more important than the grass that withers and the flesh that fades. For me, it's to live with hope. To live with a reverence for God, to live holy, to accept suffering, to embrace it, to know I am ransomed and my heart's been purified. 17 through 25, all of chapter 1 has so many nuggets of spiritual gold. It's a mindful of them. We're going um, into a time of quiet time. I'm going to encourage us to a few things. We would walk out of here in silence. We would find the place alone. We would have a Bible with us. We would meet with God, the living God. Not just a picture of him, not just an idea of him, but be fully um, fully stepping into uh, a heart posture of being willing to meet with him. I'm going to pray and then send us out quietly. Jesus So good, so good. Pray that with this quiet time, it's protected, it's undistracted, it's beautiful. You meet us where we're at. Just hear your voice say, come away with me, my beloved. I love you, Lord. Amen. Okay, you're going to get up, walk out quietly, find a, a space to be meeting with the Lord.